Hello, and welcome to the History of Africana Philosophy by G.K. Jeffers and Peter Adamson, brought to you with the support of the King's College London Philosophy Department and the LMU in Munich, online at historyofphilosophy.net. Today's episode, From Here to Timbuktu, Sub-Saharan Islamic Philosophy. If you started at the north coast of Africa and started walking south, what would you find? Well, you'd better bring some bottled water, because after passing through the settled regions of northern Africa called the Maghreb, you will encounter the Sahara Desert. Assuming you manage to reach the far side, you will then be in the Sahel, a zone of transition between the desert and the savanna that stretches from the Atlantic coast across much of Africa. The latter region has historically been known as the Sudan, though this term covers a much larger area than the modern country of Sudan. Beyond this region lie the forests of equatorial Africa. If you've stayed hydrated enough to care, you may be interested to know that every region you've passed through has a name derived from the Arabic language, a sign of the impact Islam has had on this part of the world. Maghreb means the West, because this has been the Western part of the Islamic world ever since the first Islamic conquests achieved in the first generations of the new faith. Sahra just means desert, thus the Sahara Desert is actually the Desert Desert, the sort of hidden redundancy you'll find in many other place names around the world. Quite a few waterways in the United States include Native American words for river in their names, like the Ohio River, Oyo means good river in Iroquois, or the syllable kill, which means creek in Dutch, like Fishkill Creek in New York. Sahel means coast or border, here referring to the border of the Great Desert. This is also where the word Swahili comes from, since that is just the plural form of the same word, Sawahil. Finally, there is the Sudan, or to give it its full name, Bilad al-Sudan, meaning country of the blacks, which is what Arabic speakers called the region to the south of the Sahara. Actually, the Arabic word for black was used not only for sub-Saharan Africans, but for a wider range of peoples with darker skin. Muslim intellectuals were torn between two explanations of black skin color, a religious one, according to which it is a curse laid on the descendants of Noah's son, Ham, and a scientific one that explained black skin as the result of environmental factors. The latter account, inspired by Greek ideas about climate and its influence on the body, was embraced by Al-Jahiz, a great literary figure of 9th century Iraq who was reportedly himself black, and also by a North African historian we have previously discussed on the podcast, Ibn Khaldun. The history of Islam in sub-Saharan Africa goes back just about as far as the history of Islam itself. A small group from among the Prophet Muhammad's immediate followers, including his wife, Umm Salama, retreated across the Red Sea to Ethiopia during the difficult early days of the faith. This occurred even before Muhammad led his adherents out of Mecca to found the new city of Medina, a key event in Islamic history known as the Hijra, meaning emigration. Thus, Islamic literary sources call the smaller-scale exodus to the safety of Africa the first emigration. Despite that early event, Islam did not penetrate much into East Africa for quite some time, although the islands of Pemba and Zanzibar off the coast of what is now Tanzania were established as Muslim trading ports in the medieval period. By the 15th century, there were Swahili-speaking Muslim communities clustered along much of Africa's eastern coast, and they eventually came into conflict with the Portuguese, who, after the voyage of Vasco da Gama in 1498, used the region as a staging post for trade with India. Not far into the interior of East Africa, meanwhile, there were the traditional societies that the Muslims thought of as pagan. Further west, 
The rise of Islam in sub-Saharan Africa likewise meant the gradual and incomplete displacement of so-called paganism. Given the absence of bottled water in this earlier period, you might expect that the Sahara would have been an insurmountable barrier preventing travel or trade between northern Africa and the Sahel and Sudan. The desert was a more daunting obstacle than a large sea would have been, given that boats were the fastest mode of pre-modern transport, and the Maghreb was certainly part of a wider, multi-religious Mediterranean culture during the medieval and early modern periods. Yet, it is a mistake to think of northern Africa as simply turning its face away from the rest of the continent. Trans-Saharan caravan routes were established, along which Muslim merchants carried their religion as well as their goods. Often, rulers were the first to convert, because of the intimate association between Islam and lucrative trade. An early case was at the settlement of Gao, which lies on the Niger River in present-day Mali. Then, a major incursion of Islam into Western Africa occurred in the 11th century, when the Almoravids swept down from the north to take possession of the Empire of Ghana, which should not be confused with the modern country of Ghana, as it was further north and did not even include any of the territory of that country. As you can tell, the naming of modern countries after regions or empires that covered a different and often much larger territory is a common occurrence in Africa. The Almoravids, as you may remember from the podcast on the Islamic world, had their power base in the Maghreb and extended north into Spain, as well as south into West Africa. But as in Gao, the presence of Muslim rulers in what was then Ghana did not translate into a wholesale abandonment of traditional religion and conversion to Islam. Indeed, as we'll be mentioning several times in this and the next episode, Muslim intellectuals in the region routinely complained about the failure of Islam to supplant indigenous belief systems. A good example would be a story related about a ruler named Askia Dawood, ruler of the Songhai Empire in the latter part of the 16th century. He made a show of his piety and studied with a Muslim scholar on a daily basis, yet retained such traditional practices as having his subjects sprinkle dust upon their heads to show him reverence. When his Muslim advisors denounced this as insanity, Dawood said, I am the head of sinful madmen, and I therefore made myself mad. The Songhai Empire in the Niger River region provided a setting for numerous scholars and intellectuals. To give you some idea of how extensive the scholarly community was, a survey led by C.C. Stewart and Bruce Hall has catalogued some 21,000 West African manuscripts. Of course, those manuscripts aren't all about strictly philosophical topics. The representatives of the learned class, or ulama, who produced them focused above all on the religious sciences, especially Quranic commentary, theology, and Islamic law. But philosophical issues could, of course, arise in those contexts, as we'll be seeing shortly, and there was also extensive study of logic. It is unfortunate that the complex history of logic in the post-medieval Islamic world is in general a largely unstudied field, and that goes double for logic as a tradition of sub-Saharan Africa. The Songhai Empire had as its capital the aforementioned city of Gao. The word Songhai refers to the ethnic group who were politically dominant in this state. It is also the name for a group of African languages from the region of the Niger River. The realm included another important city with Timbuktu, first founded as a base for the nomadic Tuaregs at the end of the 11th century and destined to be a center for particularly intense scholarly activity. The Songhai Empire was founded in the 1460s by Sunni Ali, who professed adherence to Islam, but whose insufficient commitment to the religion was used as a justification for his overthrow by Askia Muhammad, the father of the aforementioned Askia Dawood. 
Unlike Suli Ali, Askiya Muhammad made Islam a bulwark of his claims to legitimacy and did what the religious scholars thought any good ruler should do, ask religious scholars for advice. Muhammad turned to two scholars in particular, both from the Maghreb. Their names were Jalal ad-Din al-Suyuti and Abd al-Karim al-Maghili, and they hailed from Egypt and from Tlemcen in modern-day Algeria, respectively. Both of them died in about 1505 AD. The two were not always in agreement. We are told that al-Maghili had to defend the study of logic against the criticism of al-Sayuti. Before you leap to the conclusion that al-Maghili is therefore the more admirable of the two figures, after all, who doesn't admire logicians, we should mention that he was also a very enthusiastic persecutor of Jews. At this period, there were a number of prosperous Jewish communities in Africa, and as a biographer of al-Maghili puts it, he deemed it licit and even obligatory to spill their blood and plunder their property. He instigated a massacre of Jews in a city in modern-day Algeria in 1492, a date that in this context may sound horribly familiar. It's the same year that the Christian rulers Ferdinand and Isabella launched a persecution of Jews and Muslims following their reconquest of Spain. Al-Maghili's views on this issue were out of step with other scholars. When he argued that a Muslim could fall into unbelief merely through friendly association with Jews, his ruling found no sympathy. Yet, he was a respected expert of law and the other sciences, honored by later generations for his heroic role in spreading Islam as he traveled around West Africa. A characteristic anecdote has it that, when he arrived in one community with no books in tow, he simply wrote down the entire Quran from memory for the locals to read. He was also instrumental in bringing Sufism, or Islamic mysticism, to the region. And certainly, Askiya Muhammad thought it was worth asking his advice. He posed to al-Mahili a set of questions mostly concerning the legal obligations of a Muslim ruler. In his replies, the North African scholar emphasized that one such obligation is to take counsel from upright scholars. If he is not sure whether they are trustworthy, though, the ruler should err on the side of caution and ignore them. In an observation meant to apply to Islamic law but applicable to ethics in general, al-Maghili advises that when we suspect that a certain act is obligatory but are unsure, we should do it just to be on the safe side. And conversely, we should avoid things that we think might be forbidden. If one is really stuck, the best strategy is to do the opposite of one's instinctive desire, since we all naturally tend towards shirking our duties. Askiya Muhammad's questions and al-Maghili's replies betray anxiety over the failure of Islam to win the hearts of the populace. Askiya Muhammad complains about people under his rule that practice idolatry and magic, and of the way that unmarried women are allowed to go about naked in the traditional fashion. Unsurprisingly, al-Maghili is unsparing in his condemnation of such departures from the religious law, and even authorizes the death penalty in some cases, as with the use of magic. A related theme is the rules governing warfare within an Islamic framework. It is, according to al-Maghili, unlawful for Muslims to live without any ruler commanding them, so autonomous communities of Muslims can rightfully be annexed to the empire. Of course, jihad can also be launched against non-Muslim rulers, and if necessary, one can even risk killing Muslims who may be mixed into a population with a wicked or unbelieving leader for the sake of the greater good of reforming the society as a whole. Al-Maghili's legal opinions here are, like his attitude towards the Jews, hardly likely to win our sympathy, but he is far from an unsubtle thinker. His answers show a keen awareness of the dilemmas that arise when we face conflicting moral principles or legal prescriptions.
Something similar might be said for a treatise written by the most famous scholar of Timbuktu during the time of the Songhai Empire, whose name was Ahmad Baba. He was perhaps the brightest star in the scholarly firmament of this city, which in the 16th century boasted 150 schools of religious education. Already at the start of the 15th century, a visiting expert reported that the city was full of Sudanese jurists who knew even more about Islamic law than he did. Ahmad Baba himself wrote dozens of works especially on Islamic law. One of his most interesting treatises concerns a topic that has already started to emerge as central to this series, namely the question of the connection between race and slavery. The treatise offers a legal judgment concerning the enslavement of black Africans. As a general rule, slavery was seen as acceptable in Islam, with the significant caveat that it was not permitted to enslave other Muslims. Thus, a slave who claimed to be a Muslim, at least according to many jurists, should be freed. Indeed, al-Mahili praised Askiya Muhammad for doing precisely this. Ahmed Baba, however, was worried about how skin color had come to play a role in the way that many North Africans thought about slavery. The trans-Saharan slave trade of his time, it should be noted, was much longer established and was then still much larger in volume than the transatlantic trade of the time. Just as in the case of the transatlantic trade, the taking of slaves across the Sahara led to an association between blackness and slavery. This is what led Ahmed Baba to investigate whether skin color could play any legitimate role in determining whether someone could legally be enslaved. His answer is a definite no. He rejects the notion that race has any religious significance whatsoever, as it did in some of the then popular versions of the story of the descendants of Ham. Instead, Ahmed Baba cites with approval the environmental account of skin color that had been offered by Ibn Khaldun. It therefore makes no legal or moral difference whether someone is black, only whether someone is a Muslim. Some scholars have wondered whether this attitude may have had to do with Ahmed Baba's own skin color, yet it seems that he considered himself to be not black, but descended from Berbers, who had lived in this part of West Africa for generations. In fact, he even had some unkind things to say about black people, noting that they are typically docile and less refined, although it is interesting that he also saw this docility in a positive light, as it could manifest itself in a readiness to convert to Islam. One leading scholar of the Songhai Empire, John Hunwick, nevertheless argues that Ahmed Baba's view was affected by notions of the inferiority and enslavability of black Africans, though his legal mind rejected the simple equivalence of blackness with slavery. But even if this rejection was not related to Ahmed Baba's own identity, we should probably factor in the impact of his mentor, Muhammad Bakayogo Alwangari. We can be quite certain that he was Mande and thus a black thinker. The relationship between Alwangari and Ahmad Baba was characteristic of the intellectual culture of Timbuktu at this time. Thus, another scholar, Timothy Cleveland, argues that we have good reason to think that Ahmad Baba rejected racial slavery in part because he sympathized with the black Muslims of West Africa. His beloved hometown, Timbuktu, was a predominantly black town in the predominantly black kingdom of Songhai, and his sheikh was Mohammed Bagayogo Alwangari. That being said, though, it must be admitted that his ruling was certainly not intended to put an end to the slave trade in Africa, which was a major part of the economic trade between sub-Saharan Islam and the rest of the Islamic world. Muslims regularly raided the so-called pagan areas, seized captives and put them to work as slaves in their own states, or sold them on to North Africa and even such far-flung locales as Italy and Asia Minor. Ahmed Baba's point 
was that the slave trade needed to be regulated by Islamic law and that in this case, the law was colorblind. Ironically, Ahmed Baba had earlier experienced his own trauma of captivity at the hands of an invading military force. In 1591, an army from Morocco swept away the Songhai Empire. In the chaos, Ahmed Baba lost no fewer than 1,600 books, his vast personal library providing another indication of how scholarship had flourished up to this time. And he was taken captive and brought back to Morocco. After being freed, he returned to Timbuktu, where he wrote the treatise on slavery and many other works. The fall of the Songhai Empire certainly in no way marked the end of Islamic intellectual activity in West Africa. A remarkable example comes from the end of the 17th century with the work of a man named Muhammad al-Wali al-Maliki. Al-Wali belonged to the ethnic group known as the Fulani, which produced many scholars who spread Islam around sub-Saharan Africa. In keeping with this tradition, he was a self-styled theologian, or mutakalim, in the classical mode, who set himself up as a teacher and jurist in the Sultanate of Bagirmi in what is now the country of Chad. Al-Wali's most celebrated work is called The Peerless Method to Knowledge of the Science of Theology, a commentary on a religious creed written by the 15th century North African scholar Asanusi, which is still used in religious education in Nigeria in the present day. There was apparently a long-standing oral tradition in which Fulani religious scholars passed down their understanding of Asanusi's text from one generation to the next. Drawing on that oral tradition, Al-Wali took the decision to set down comments on the work in writing. Doret van Dalen, who has written a book about Al-Wali and his commentary, suggests that this was an attempt to assert the authority of the ulama, the literate scholars who were trained in the Islamic textual tradition. This fits with a particularly prominent theme pursued in his commentary, the condemnation of what in Arabic was called taklid. Taklid means forming one's beliefs through uncritical imitation or acceptance of what others have said, and when he spoke against it, al-Wali was taking up a long-running theme of Islamic culture. It was often thought that the ulama were distinguished from the common run of Muslim believers precisely by their refusal to engage in taklid. These were the men who learned to think for themselves, whose very belief in God was founded in a grasp of argumentative proof and not simply acceptance of the religious convictions of their culture. But al-Wali went further than this. He argued that not only scholars, but every Muslim should have good reasons for their beliefs in order to put their faith on a firm foundation. As Van Dalen puts it, the position of the peerless method is clear. Muslims had to gather intellectual as opposed to intuitive knowledge about their religion and to use their intellect to understand it. This is why common believers should look to the ulama for guidance in understanding the doctrines of their own religion, since it is they who can explain the reasons why the religion deserves credence, and thus put any common believer in a position to rationally explain this as well. Al-Wali's strictures against uncritical religious belief were, in a sense, a broader application of the values espoused by al-Maghili in his advice to Askiya Muhammad. All Muslims, and especially the rulers, should learn from the intellectuals who have devoted themselves to understanding Islam more fully, and who could put its doctrines on a rational foundation. But what should the scholars do when rulers were not ready to listen to them? One option was to help overthrow those rulers. Through the 17th and 18th centuries, a number of uprisings were launched in an effort to establish more authentically Islamic states. At the turn of the 19th century, this movement found its most successful expression in the jihad that created the Sokoto Caliphate in what is now Nigeria. 
Drawing inspiration from some of the figures we've discussed in this episode, the scholar and military leader Uthman Danfodio deposed rulers he deemed to be insufficiently sincere in their faith and established a new regime. It was intended to put the legal and moral teachings of the ulama into practice and to a greater extent than had ever been managed in West Africa. So don't desert us now, because his movement and its dramatic consequences in the sub-Saharan region will be our focus next time, here on The History of Africana Philosophy. (laughs) 